0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we were lucky enough to recently be invited by the Dallas Museum of Art to participate in their late nights program for an Olympic themed evening of fun and art. It was super exciting. Invitation. It was, and it was really great, but it was a little wacky. Yeah, uh, we flew in on the day of the event, and we had plenty of time factored in to this plan. But due to severe weather, the Dallas-Fort Worth airport got shut down, and we couldn't land, and we had to be diverted to Shreveport. Uh, and finally, we took off again. We made it to the museum. Our amazing liaison at the DMA, Jesse Fraser, had switched up the schedule to basically postpone our talk. By two hours. Two hours! Uh, And much to our surprise, our amazing listeners were still there. (laughs) Yeah, I I was perfectly ready, and I mention it in the episode that you're about to hear, that I really thought everybody would leave. But they didn't. They stuck around. They were amazing. It was really humbling and really touching. And the evening turned out to be incredibly fun, even if getting there had been a crazy, frantic dash. But this episode runs a little long, so now, without further ado, we are just going to intro it and let it go. It is our chat with our Dallas listeners about Pierre de Coubertin, considered the father of the modern Olympics. And here we go. Hi, everybody. We are so happy to be here. Yeah. (laughs) And so happy you're here. Thank you for being so patient and dealing with the weird time delay. Uh, it's been an you, adventurous day of travel. Normally, I mean. yeah, normally when we have a live show, we start with some story about what fascinating thing we saw in your city today. Uh, what we saw today actually was Shreveport. <laughs> uh, that was unexpected. Which we didn't actually see because we had to stay on the plane the whole time. With the shutters down so that it wouldn't get too hot. So that that was that was how it started out. But now we're here, and we're delighted to be here. Very, totally very worked out. Yeah. There were some dicey moments. We did not know if we were going to make it. <laughs> uh, so we're very elated to be here. Uh, and again, thank you guys for rolling with the crazy time change. We really expected there to be like our six friends that were invited <laughs> and then like maybe two stragglers who were just tired and needed a place to sit. So it's wonderful oh, to see all of you. Yes. Are you ready to talk about the Olympics?
1: Ooh. How many uh, how many of you guys have
0: been watching the Olympics? Cuz Tracy does not have the rabies like I have, but I have Olympic rabies. Like I telework a lot in the last two weeks. I've been teleworking so I can just watch it all day long and I have it going on the television and then another one on a monitor so I can get a secondary feed because I have Olympic rabies. Um, So it's, it's exciting. So it's very exciting for me to get to talk about sort of where the modern Olympics started and some of the really wild ride it went on for a little while before it kind of smoothed out yeah you want to talk about that for a bit yeah okay so i'm gonna be a jerk and take off my glasses because my vision is poor and i can't read my page and look at you at the same time I know I need bifocals probably. (laughs) uh, I already got the lecture. It's fine. This is literally what we were talking about backstage. (laughs) It is, it is, it is. So tonight we are going to talk about the man who reignited the world's interest in the Olympics and really catalyzed the launch of the modern games. And we're also going to talk, as Jesse mentioned, about Several of the early games and how a rather rocky start eventually led to the games becoming what we know them of today, what we know of them today and how obsessively people like me watch them. Also, we never did our hello and welcome to the podcast. (laughs) You want to do that part now? Sure, and then I'll do this other paragraph, and then we'll smooth it right out. We're just like the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say we're just like at home. <laughs> well, no, we're already way smoother than that. <laughs> uh, because we have a wonderful editor, Tracy, and I sometimes are a little sloppy jalopy in the studio. We can be. Especially because you record early in the morning, and we often have been up kind of late making sure all our notes are together. And sometimes... It's not good. Uh, we're very, like, kind of like, I need more coffee. I can't. But we'll start like it's a regular podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Sometimes, some- <laughs> sometimes don't you want to just switch to confuse people? There have been times I've almost just said your name. For- <laughs> I've not, I've not ever been quite sure why I almost said your name, but that's happened more than once. I have almost said I'm Holly V. Fry, which is not my middle initial, but it's hers. Well, and when we had that previous podcast, Pop Stuff, we would say weird things. Yeah. We were a little nuttier. Yeah. Maybe one day yeah, we'll be I was a little more again. casual than yeah. our current podcast. So while Pierre de Coubertin, who is the father of the modern Olympics, is characterized in a lot of different ways, including sometimes a fool, sometimes a sexist, pretty accurate, um, <laughs> and a visionary, regardless of the lens that you use to look at his life, he really did leave an indelible mark on history as the father of the modern Olympic Games. It's true. And Pierre de Freddy was born a baby New Year. He was born in Paris, France on New Year's Day of 1863. He was the fourth and final child of a very aristocratic family. And his father, now here's the part where if we were in the studio, I'd probably get to do it a couple times. I'm just going to act like I can speak French really well today. Uh, Charles de Freddy, Baron de Coubertin. And he was a painter. His mother was marie Marcel Guiggeau de Crisnoy. I didn't do that one very well. It's uh, cool. And the family traveled a lot throughout Europe. And when they weren't on the road, they could often be found at his mother's family's chateau, which was in Normandy. Don't you just wish your family had a chateau in Normandy? You could I do. To? Uh, and Pierre attended school primarily in Paris at the Jesuit College of St. Ignatius, and he earned a degree in literature, actually. And he next continued his education at the law faculty of the political sciences, which was uh, pretty common for aristocratic young men. They would kind of go military, which he was offered a military career and turned it down and decided he would go to college. Uh, but instead, he decided to pursue his his law education. It did not stick. No, because he didn't really find his calling until he became interested in education. And his dedication to the field of education grew steadily until 1883. And at that point, he was 20. And so what he decided to do was to go to England to compare the educational systems of England and France. And he was convinced after this study of the two approaches to education that the key to a really balanced and thorough education was the inclusion of sports in school curriculums. So all of you who groaned your way through P.E., thanks, Pierre. (laughs) It's false. And his personal mission really became one of educational reform overall, but sports was really the focus of his agenda pretty much throughout. One of the things that he did a whole lot of was start groups. (laughs) He liked to start groups. He started a lot of groups. He established the Union de Société Française de Course à Pied, which was the Union of French Running Groups. And that was in 1887. Yeah, we'll pop in periodically with some of the groups that he started because he was a busy bee. Uh, and he had some really, really big goals in mind for sports. So he pretty early on decided it would be super cool if we reestablished the Olympic Games. And so he worked really diligently towards that starting at the end of the 1880s. And that year at the Universal Exhibition in Paris, he started an assembly series where basically he was bringing people together so that he could promote the importance of sport and physical education in groups very much like what we have here today. So in 1892, at one of these uh, gatherings that he had started, he launched a plan to revive the Olympics, which at that point was a much smaller deal, not an international giganto thing like it is now. And he spoke to this group and he talked about the virtues of sport as a great way to achieve any more, even more than the technology of the day could achieve. And his thing that he said was, quote, let us export rowers, runners and fencers. There is the free trade of the future. And on the day it is introduced within the walls of old Europe, the cause of peace will have received a new and mighty stay. He was real excited. Uh, and his enthusiastic idea really did met, was met with enthusiastic response, but ultimately failure. Uh, he was undeterred. He still thought this was a good idea and he was going to keep going. And we should also mention, Tracy kind of alluded to it, that there were... Events happening that people were calling the Olympics that were modeled on the historical Olympics of ancient times, but they were like local. It would be like the city Olympics or even the country Olympics in some case, but nothing where we were going to have multiple countries coming together to compete. So there, that was, sorry, really right. considered insanely ambitious. I mean, that's why people were like, "It's a great idea." They're not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> There was, though, some interest in the idea of the Olympics, and that was in part fueled by archaeological excavations that were happening at the site of ancient Olympia. And so there was this whole zeal for antiquity that became a driving force in adopting this whole Olympic Games idea. In a report on the first modern games, it was written, quote, We shall then, before long, enter, on the 20th century, crowned with the fair flowers of ancient civilization. That's very poetic. It is poetic. Uh, and Coubertin taking advantage of this fascination with Olympia's history that was part of the culture of later 19th century. Because if you've studied, like, Victorian culture at all, you know they got really obsessed with, like, these weird little pockets of other cultures, and they would kind of blow them out in completely inappropriate and, you know, lack of understanding type ways. But they got very obsessed. So he thought he was going to trade on that, and he arranged for yet another big gathering. And this assembly, which was the International Athletics Congress, Congress in 1894 was hosted at the Sorbonne in Paris. And unlike the 1892 Congress, this group resolved to follow through on Coubertin's idea. They were in, in, in. And so this eventually led to the creation of a, a body that we still have today, which is the International Olympic Committee and the revival, ultimately, of the Olympic Games. And this is also when some of the basic guidelines around participation were created, including like amateur athletes had to compete and... Uh, when there could and could not be prizes. So in the middle of all this starting groups and wanting to relaunch the Olympics, uh, we should also point out that Pierre de Coubertin also had a personal life. He was doing other things too. Uh, On March 12th of 1895, he married Marie Rothin, and they had their first child named Jacques a year later in 1896. And of course, also in 1896, the first modern Olympic Games took place in Athens, Greece. So that was a very big year for Pierre. So while he is called the father of the modern Olympics, those first modern games definitely would not happen without the involvement of another man, Georgios Averoff. Money had been a serious problem for the Olympic plan from the beginning. This may sound familiar to people who are familiar (laughs) with the current Olympic Games. Initially, the city of Athens was reluctant to host it because Greece was insolvent. That may also sound familiar. Uh, The city just didn't have the money to do it, and there was no infrastructure to support it either. Yeah, but people really wanted to go back to the site of the ancient Olympics to kick this thing off. So Averoff, who was an Alexandrian man with great private wealth from Uh, shipping, banking, real estate. He just was a really good businessman, had his hands in a lot of stuff that was making a great deal of money. And he financed the restoration of the stadium that was used for the Olympics. And this structure had originally been built in 330 BCE, so it was extremely ancient. And it had only been excavated a few decades prior to this, so it needed a lot of work. It required so much money to restore, but Averoff was willing. And in doing so, he not only injected funding into the project, but he also catalyzed additional sponsorships from other wealthy patrons, ultimately making the games possible. So it just took one rich guy to get the other rich guys interested. (laughs) It was kind of a quirky thing, though. Uh, The stadium, for example, the track was a lot longer and narrower than a regulation track, so the runners had to, like, change their speed when they went around the curves because the curves were really tight. It was regulation in ancient times, but (laughs) not today. Uh, And as an aside... The winter weather that happened prior to the games prevented the completion of that stadium quite as designed. So initially, all of the stadium and the seating was supposed to be restored with Pentelic marble. This is this beautiful white marble. But construction was only completed for the seating portion. The rest was done, but the seating, just the first six rows were done. So they had to kind of quickly shuffle in some wooden seating to fill out the rest of it. Uh, but Averoff, true to his word, did provide additional funding after the Olympics had wrapped up so that they could, in fact, restore the entire facility. I just want to say a restored stadium with marble seats sounds really beautiful. And really uncomfortable. I don't want <laughs> to <be that. laughs> uh, So the first summer games, they were only for men. No women competing uh, they began on April 6th of 1896, and that was Easter Monday, and they ran until April the 15th. About 60,000 spectators were there the first day, and there were 241 athletes from 14 different countries who traveled to Athens to participate. Uh, even though it was really hot and sunny, parasols were not allowed because that might block the view for everybody else. Yeah, ladies could carry fans, but no parasols. And the Greek royal family was on hand that afternoon, and they addressed the crowd. There wasn't really an opening ceremony the way we know it now. That didn't happen until later. But they were there and kind of kicked everything off. And they did have a hymn that was kind of their opening ceremonies that was written specially for the occasion. And it was sung by a choir of 150 vocalists and by all accounts was just a lovely, lovely thing. So uh, we're used to seeing, seeing really inspiring human stories in uh, televised Olympic coverage. Those stories are actually <laughs> what made people want to watch the Olympics on television. Like the Olympics were not popular on TV until they started showing the story of like the underdog athlete who became this wonderful star. Uh, but there have always been amazing people with unique stories behind the participation in the games even before there were TV networks deciding, oh, this would be a great way to get people to watch. Uh, and so in a little bit we're gonna talk about them. Yeah, uh, but first we're gonna pause for a word from one of our sponsors. So, one of those uh, sort of personal interest stories that we talked about involves Hungarian swimmer Alfred Hajos, and he was an architecture student who had made a conscious decision to become good at swimming when he was just a boy because he watched his father drown in the Danube when he was 13. Uh, which is kind of a horrifying impetus to do something really well, but it worked. Uh, he got really good at it. And his architecture school was not super enthused that he was going to hop away and go do this weird Olympics thing. Uh, they didn't want to give him the time to compete, even though he was already a decorated competitive swimmer. It wasn't like a guy who went, hey, teach, can I have the week off because I would like to go swim. It was like, no, you remember when I won all of those awards? I would like to go win more awards. And they were like, hmm, schoolwork. Um, but he went to the games anyway. He also won the gold in two events, uh, the 100-meter and the 1,200-meter freestyle. So the way the 1,200-meter freestyle worked was it took all the people out in a boat 1,200 meters away, and they were like... <laughs> They were like, you, you gotta swim to shore. Uh, and, and then he said that the driving force behind this achievement was actually fear. And his, his quote was, My will to live completely overcame my desire to win. But he wanted to live more than all the other swimmers, apparently, <laughs> because he whipped them soundly. Uh, Hayosh did go on to finish his architecture degree after the games, and in kind of, I think, a lovely twist, uh, he went on, went on to design sports stadiums and swimming facilities, many of which are still in use today. So he was good at swimming and good at architecture. Yeah. Uh, I mean, then the next sort of inspiring people we'll talk about were marksmen. They were two American brothers, John and Sumner Payne. Uh, and they were like a big story that year in the Olympics. Because for one thing, they didn't really have any training involved in their participation. Really, they were just, they could shoot things. It's a little whimmy. Uh, so John was going to Athens for the games. He stopped in France where his brother lived. And was like, hey, do you want to come to compete in these revolver matches with me? Uh, and his brother said, sure. And the Boston Athletic Association was already sending a team. And both of the men were already members. So that worked out. Yeah, so he was kind of grandfathered in by virtue of being in that athletic group. And the pair got to Athens, and they had no idea what to expect and what to pack, so they basically brought a crazy arsenal. This wouldn't work today. No. Uh, They had a lot of different revolvers, they had a lot of different ammo, because they didn't know what they'd need. And they got there literally the night before the competition began, so... Even though they had no prep time, though, they dominated the first event, which was the 25-meter military revolver contest. And John easily took the gold. Sumner came in second. And John's score was more than double that of the third-place shooter. It was like, Sumner brother, Sumner brother, hey, you guys. Like, they were just not, nobody could come anywhere close to them. So the next day, John sat out, because they had agreed between the two of them that whoever won the first day would not play the second day. Right. We uh, should point out, this may explain why, they weren't doing gold, silver, bronze. It was like, you win, or you, you're the rest of the dudes. There was So it wasn't quite as fancy to be second. Yeah. So Sumner, uh, this time, took the gold in the 30-meter competition, once again, way, way beyond all of the other scores. <laughs> they had arrived at the game the games with uh, 3,200 rounds of ammunition, which, like, that seems like a a lot. Uh, Again, for revolvers. (laughs) I'm not sure how they thought this game was going to work. They only fired 96 shots, though. (laughs) I don't know what they did with the rest of that ammo. I know. I, I nobody ever tells you if they just were like, okay, let's trundle all of this back to the states. Like, yeah. So, although did I guess they took it a, home and started a shooting. A range? lot of it just had to go to France to oh, Sumner's sorry. house. I guess so. Uh, the last athlete from those first Olympic games that we're going to talk about is Carl Schumann, and he was 26 when he competed. And the feats that he pulled off were astonishing. Because, I mean, we those of you that raised your hands when you said you watched the Olympics, I'm sure you sit there like me going, oh, my gosh, these are superheroes. This is not human, possibly. Oh, my God! Like you lose your mind, and you just go insane. So imagine doing that for somebody that goes, uh, I'm going to do a few different sports, you guys. You did lots of sports. Carl Schumann, not just one. Yep. Many sports. Carl, Sch- uh, Carl Schumann, did we say that he was 26? We did. Okay. So I wasn't paying attention. Oh, again. dear. Uh Schumann won the gold in several different gymnastics events. He got team gold and horizontal bar and parallel bars and an individual gold in the vault. So that is already, that's a lot of gold. And, but then he also competed in Greco-Roman wrestling and he made it to the gold medal match. And that bout lasted on the first day for 40 minutes. Uh, But then they had to pause because the sun was going down. And so they started up again the next morning. Uh, And he ultimately won after 15 additional minutes that were played out after everyone had gone to bed and woken up again. (laughs) As I was working on the research for this, in my head it was very much like when you're kids and you have to go home because it's dark out. (laughs) Except then you have to come back and compete at in an international athletic level. Um, that's not how it worked in your neighborhood as a kid. Uh, so Schumann also competed in weightlifting and track and field events, uh, including the long jump and the shot put, although he did not place in those events. And at a time when the city was really riding high on the fact that a hometown hero named uh, Spyridon Lewis had won the marathon, that was like a big deal, uh, and Greece was pretty much going bananas over him. The king of Greece actually turned to Schumann and said, I think you're the most popular man in Greece now. Because he had just blown everybody away by being this incredible multi-sport athlete. So after the 1896 Games and their great success, Coubertin became the International Olympic Committee president, and he replaced Demetrius Vikalis. And this would be a job that he would then have for a really long time. He remained the IOC president until 1920, no, wait, 1925, which was 29 years after he first took the job. Uh, and then he was named honorary president for life. And the first games that were staged under Coubertin's leadership as IOC president, whoops, uh, they did not go well at all. Uh, they were in Paris. In 1900, and we have to say that Coubertin can't really be shackled with all of the shame in this because the games were kind of lumped together with the 1900 Paris Exposition. So control of the Olympics was pretty much taken over by the French government, and they saw the Olympics as a secondary event to the World's Fair. So the Olympic planning really did not get enough attention or focus by the, by the, the government committees. So there's an episode in our archive by previous hosts that is specifically about this, these games and what a debacle they were. So we're just going to hit a few of the highlights of the misery and confusion of the Olympic Games. Uh, we'll start with the fact that the committee that was doing the advertising and the promotion tended to like give out this information as being part of the expo programming. So a lot of the athletes didn't even know that they were at the Olympics. <laughs> they thought they were part of a completely different sporting event. And despite the fact that they may not have known what they were there for, there were far more athletes uh, at the French Games than there had been at the previous Games that were so successful in Athens. There were this time 997 participants from 24 countries, although France by far had the most uh, competitors involved. And the 1900 Games also had the first black Olympic competitor, Constantine Enrique de Zubiera, I think, uh, who participated on the French rugby team. So because these games were in conjunction with the expo, they dragged on and on and on. They opened on May the 14th and they wrapped up on October 28th. (laughs) I have a friend who's super into the Olympics, like to the point that he says on Facebook, you just want to unfollow me for the next two weeks. And it's like, it's like, minutely. It's almost like he's he's live tweeting the Olympics on his Facebook. Um, and I don't I think his fingers would have fallen off if the Olympics now are going from May fourteenth until October twenty eighth. He'd, he'd just walk around like this for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> he would have finger cramps forever. Uh-huh. So the scheduling of the events was so poorly handled and the information was so poorly shared that a lot of them just like they happened with no journalists to cover them and no spectators either. Yeah. I think uh, it was a croquet match where one person showed up and was like, am I even in the right place? I don't, I'm not from your country. Um, and the venues were entirely subpar. So they did not have a fabulously wealthy investor to complete beautiful venues. Um, one of the other things that was happening, uh, the track and field events were being held on, like, really slippery, uneven ground. So you can imagine how beautifully that went off. Um, And swimming was taking place in the Seine, and the currents were causing swimmers to have really fast times. It was just kind of throwing them down the river, basically. It was even faster than the Rio pool, apparently. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of new events were added that year and some of them have continued on. There was archery, rowing, and football. That means soccer. Uh, and then there were also events that, that year like croquet and golf that didn't become standard parts of the Olympic programs, but golf did come back in 2016, so maybe we'll stick around. And I'm going to confess, I didn't follow it. I don't know what happened. Or if it's still happening, golf is not my thing. Uh, And though the IOC did not officially recognize women's events, 22 women did participate in the 1900 Games. You'll often hear about uh, Great Britain's Charlotte Cooper as being the first woman to win a gold medal in the modern Olympics. She won for tennis. But there was actually another woman Elaine de Portalet of Switzerland, who had competed on a yachting team and that won gold a couple months prior to Cooper's victory. So she didn't win an individual, but she is technically really the first woman that ever won a gold. There was also an American woman, Margaret Abbott, who won a gold in golf. However, she was one of the people who did not know that she was at that moment competing in the Olympics. <laughs> uh, and then Holly and I had a conversation on the plane about she may not have even known that. In her life. In her life. Uh, it's unclear whether, whether this was something that people put the pieces together after she died or not. But regardless, uh, all of this confusion was due to just terrible record keeping and bad, bad communication throughout the five month run of the Olympic Games. Uh, there were also some interesting things going on where in team events, and some of those included polo, sailing, and tennis. Uh, where the participants weren't even all from the same country because they couldn't kind of get it all together in one country. And also they didn't know it was the Olympics. So uh, this includes the Dutch two-man rowing team, which won gold. And this is sort of fascinating. Uh, it's one that Sarah and Dublina talked about in their episode specifically about this. But at the last moment, the coxswain on the Dutch team had to be replaced and the person that replaced them was like a young French boy, like a young French boy, like 7 to 13 is where his age is guessed. And they won gold, and he was in the pictures, and then he vanished, and no one has any idea who he ever was. <laughs> so he's sometimes referred to as like the lost Olympian or the missing Olympian, and I just wonder if there was just a kid wandering around France trying to tell people he had won an Olympic gold medal, and people were like, ah, push up. <laughs> Uh, so, obviously, this was a mess. It was so much of a mess that there was some debate as to whether the 1900 Games could even be considered real Olympics. Uh, the French, though, did walk away with 100 medals, which made the governmental organizers really happy about their involvement. Uh, Coubertin, though, was not really thrilled, and he really hoped that one day France would be able to redeem itself as an Olympic host. Uh, and next up we're gonna talk about the 1904 games, which saw history repeating itself almost immediately. Uh, but first we're gonna pause for a sponsor break. We'll hop back in and talk about the 1904 games which took place in St. Louis. And uh you know, you might think that after that whole problem of running an Olympic games alongside an international exposition had been so evident that we would never do it again. Except we did it again the next time. <laughs> they did the exact same thing. It's after working on this podcast for 3 years, that just seems to happen a lot in history. Like that didn't work, let's We're try to do that more. exact same thing again. <laughs> So the 1904 Olympics were initially announced as a Chicago, Illinois event, but then the organizers realized they were going to be competing with the World's Fair in St. Louis uh, and that the city of St. Louis had already arranged to have the Amateur Athletic Union's track and field championships there at the same time. So basically there were conflicts in the calendar. So the decision was made to once again loop the Olympics and the expo together and all of the exact same problems that had happened the previous time happened again. Yeah. So once again, because they wanted to run it kind of over the course of the expo, it went on for months and months and months. Uh, I think that one was like April to October, but it was very similar, like a four and a half, five month situation. Uh, only 12 countries participated this time because <laughs> Paris had been such a train wreck uh, and of the 630 athletes who did choose to compete, 83% of those were from the U.S. So internationally, people were like, nope. Uh, it was definitely not, you know, the beautiful international people coming together event that Kubrick always envisioned for the Olympic Games. He also didn't envision a lot of cheating problems. No. Nope. But we had that in 1904. <laughs> Uh, there was a boxer who entered the games under the assumed name of a popular local person from St. Louis, hoping that the judges would be more generous with his points and would not recognize this very obvious fraud. They did eventually, but it took a shockingly long time. Um, and then the marathon winner, uh, Fred Lors, had actually become ill on the course while he was running, and he dropped out of the event and got picked up by, like, an assistance vehicle. And then when that car was carrying back, carrying him back to the stadium, it broke down. And he was like, well, I feel better. So he just jumped back in. <laughs> so he rejoined the race, and he crossed the line first. Um, and eventually people realized someone had seen him do this. And so later, to avoid a lifetime ban from the sport, because, of course, everybody was up in arms about it, He claimed that he had experienced temporary insanity during the race. This is where I go, really? I was crazy. I didn't know what I was doing. Really? So after this 1904, uh, the word that I was going to say is not appropriate for a family audience, uh, so I'm just going to say debacle, Uh, Kubertan wrote, quote, I had a sort of presentment that the Olympiad would match the mediocrity of the town. He, didn't, he wasn't a big fan of St. Louis. Yeah. Remember, he was fancy and French, so you know. I'm glad he, we're not doing the show in St. Louis because that might have been really offensive. It would have been bad. Uh, what well, was Coubertin? We didn't say that about St. Louis. Uh, and while the Baron de Coubertin prepared for the next games, which were going to be held in Rome, he also busied himself in some other ways. Remember how we talked about how he liked to start groups and do stuff. Uh, he never ever lost his passion for education. So even while he was kind of spearheading all of these Olympic. Events, he was also still trying to do some some good and some um, revision and reform in the education sphere. And so in 1906 he founded l'Association pour la reforme de l'enseignement, also known as the Association for Teaching Reform. So Holly just said that the next Olympics were going to be in Rome, but that is not what happened. Uh, in 1906, the Italian organizers were already way, way behind schedule, and then on top of there being Behind schedule, Vesuvius erupted, uh, and it was immediately obvious that Rome was not going to be ready for Olympics in time to actually have them there. So Italy needed to also reallocate all of the funds that were supposed to go to pay for the games to instead pay for a volcano cleanup. So uh, they decided to uh, move them elsewhere, and London offered to host the games with only two years to get ready for it. And that sounds like we're leading to another disaster story. Those British got their act together, though, man. They didn't. These were incredibly, incredibly well-organized games. Uh, under the leadership of British Olympic Association Chairman Lord Desborough. they were it really considered to be just pretty amazing in terms of how well-run they were. The venues had been built specifically for the games through a, an interesting deal he worked, where the Franco-British Exhibition of 1908 actually footed the bill to build all of these buildings in exchange for getting part of the ticket sales back. Uh, so that was one of of the ways that London kind of worked this whole deal financially. And there was, for the first time ever, a pool built for swimming events so they didn't have to throw guys down a river or take them by boat way far away and tell them to just get back onto shore somehow. <laughs> Swim back and don't drown. Yeah. Uh, 2008 athletes from 22 different countries participated in these games, which once again went from April all the way to October, so we hadn't quite worked that part out yet. Uh, however, women were finally allowed to officially uh, compete in the games, although Coubertin was not a fan of letting them do this. He called women's athletics, quote, the most unaesthetic sight human eyes could contemplate. Thanks, Coubertin. What a charmer. But then when I think about it in a French accent, I'm like, okay. (laughs) I don't agree, but it's still cute. Also, we did not mention, and I didn't put it in these notes, Go look up Pierre de Coubertin on the internet. The most spectacular mustache you have ever seen on the planet. He had a pretty spectacular, a pretty great mustache, kind yeah. of wonderful, slightly goofy. Yeah, it was good. when we were settling on what topic to do for our live show here, you kept sending me pictures. <laughs> I was like, like this will make you want to do this one, and I was like, ah, sure, that's I a big mustache. I just gave her up. It was like death by a thousand cuts of mustache <laughs> pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and while this was really where the games, as we see them, started to develop and take shape, there was definitely drama as well as some very interesting developments. So we'll tick off a few of those. Uh, the first one is that the marathon finally got its now standard 26.2 mile, 42 kilometer, and 195 meter distance at these games. So prior to that, the distance had varied, and one of the reasons that this distance happened at these games is that that last 195 meters needed to be added so they would finish under the royal box. Because the royal people had to see it. They had to see the big finish. Uh, the winner of that marathon, he was an Italian named Dorando Pietri, collapsed on the track before the finish and was helped to the end, which is a very Olympic story. Uh, but his victory was disqualified because of the part where someone helped him. Maybe that's not as... Olympic in its storiness, uh, but an American named Johnny Hayes caught after all of that was the person declared the winner and uh we should point out it wasn't another athlete that stopped and helped him it was no. it was like people that were just uh, people who were around well, i think it was olympic officials that I kind see. of were like oh come on you can finish uh he did get sort of a um uh, i don't remember what exactly they gave him they gave him kind of a consolation prize for having great olympic spirit and you know working so hard like they didn't want to just go yoink we took your prize away and gave it to this other guy wah. wah. um that was also the first year that the parade of athletes behind their national flag started. Uh, but there were some protests that happened in it. So first, the United States refused to dip their flag in uh, honor of Britain's King Edward VII. We fought a war to not have to do that. Right. And that's one of those things that uh, it kept coming up. I saw that referenced in several different places. And every time it would kind of coda with a tradition that continues today. LAUGHTER like, So, like, they just kind of, I always assume that's some British person writing, Americans are still jerks. Um, (laughs) Russian rule in Finland was being protested by the Finnish athletes, so they refused to carry a flag because it represented that. Uh, And Irish athletes refused to participate under the flag of Great Britain, and most of them ended up not competing at all because of it. I can't believe there was this much drama about flags. Do you have a flag? Do you have a flag? (laughs) Uh, so the awarding of medals had not been uniform in previous Olympics. Um, the London Games awarded medals to all winners. Yeah, in some of the, the Olympics prior to that, sometimes they would get medals. And then, like... It, it, and I don't mean like, oh, in this Olympics they got medals and in this, in the same Olympics some people would get medals and others would get like a certificate. Um, you can imagine how irate making that would be. Uh, and in the 400 meter final, American runner J.C. Carpenter in these Olympics was found to have obstructed British competitor Wyndham Halswell. So the race results were completely thrown out. And the solution was that they were gonna have a do-over. <laughs> um, but the Americans were very crabby about the whole thing and refused to participate. And in the end, Halswell was the only one and he ran the race alone. <laughs> uh, so he automatically won the gold. Did he, did he try hard when he ran or was he just like, I'm doing it now? Yeah, no, I think, I think he, he put forth effort. Okay. He felt a little cheated by having been obstructed the first time around. Sure. Sure. So it was decided at the 1908 Games that future games would include competitions in the arts, specifically literature, architecture, and sculpture, which was actually another contender for the topic of our live show. It was one of the things we talked about maybe talking about. Those awards were part of the Games from 1912 to 1948. And now we're going to jump to a really good one. Uh, Because in 1912, the next one, the Fifth Olympiad, this took place in Stockholm, and this is when the modern Olympic Games really, really hit their stride. Like, they were good. They ran from May to July, so not the four- to five-month big extended festival. Uh, they were attended by 2,407 athletes from 28 countries, including 48 women, participating in an ever-expanding field of events. Sorry, Coubertin. <laughs> he would hate the Olympics now. I, m- yeah. May- uh, maybe. Maybe. He he would hate some of the Olympics. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Uh, the games were so efficient and so well run that they were nicknamed the Swedish masterpiece. Uh, photo finish and automatic timing made their way their Olympic debuts this year, and they really legitimized the competition in the whole a whole new way. Because now you had like very precise ways of telling who won. Yeah. It just, you know, added a little science to the mix. Uh, and while the Stockholm Games went off just about perfectly, there was one small issue in that the boxing competition was canceled because the Swedish organizers found it distasteful. Um, and this led to the IOC eventually restricting the responsibilities that local host groups had over making decisions like that so that they wouldn't be able to make changes in the program kind of late in the game. But just the same, finally, everyone could agree that in Sweden, the modern Olympics had arrived. So now we're going to get into Pierre de Coubertin. Suddenly, I can't say his name. We're now we're going to get into Pierre de final years. I still didn't say it right. That's okay. My mouth has stopped working. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, he served as president for another 13 years. Once the Paris Games of 1924 had wrapped up. He was basically ready to retire. The 1924 event had been a success. It had drawn record numbers of attendees and athletes and participating countries and journalists to cover all of it. So basically, Paris had been redeemed from this 1900 debacle. And the same year as his retirement, which was the year after that, 1925, Um, As active duty president, he also founded the Olympic Museum and Library, and this includes his extensive writing and records, because throughout all of this, every time he had made a speech from the 1880s on, he made notes, he kept it. Every meeting that he had, every piece of notation he made about the Olympics in each year that they were happening and all of the planning, he had been writing about it prolifically the whole time. So that sort of formed the basis for this museum and library. Uh, and all of his correspondence that was used as part of this, you know, move to really reignite the, the Olympic flame throughout the world. Uh, he continued his educational work during this time too. He established Lyon Le. I can't say it. You can this. just do the English version. I'll just say it in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's getting late now. <laughs> uh the Universal Pedagogical Union, and that was in 1925. Then in 1928 he insisted he insists that's not what it says at all. I swear this is not vodka. No. I also I even printed my notes really big so that I would be sure to be able to read them on the stage. And yet I'm having trouble now. It is late. Uh in 1928 he instituted the uh International Sports Education Office. So he was still doing a whole lot of group group forming relating to sports and athletics. And then in 1936, so a little bit later, it was kind of a mixed year for Coubertin. He was a candidate for the Nobel Peace Prize that year because of all of his work in the Olympic Games, but he did not win. The prize that year was awarded to Argentine politician and academic Carlos Saavedra Lamas, who was the first Latin American recipient of the Nobel Prize. So pretty exciting for him, not so much for Coubertin. He did win another award in 1936, however. That was the Virginie Herald Prize, named for a famed French Olympian and yachtswoman from the 1920s. Yeah, she was kind of, if you listen to the show, she was kind of running in the same circles as Joe Carstairs, one of my big favorites. Love her. But the 1936 Olympics, despite him having this interesting year in terms of awards and recognition, uh, were incredibly stressful for Coubertin. Because when the IOC had selected Berlin as the location for the 36 Olympics, it was 1931. And it was two years after that that Hitler became the chancellor of Germany, and everything changed. Um, And in that moment when they had awarded it to Germany in 31, it was sort of this great indicator that the strife of World War I was being put aside and Germany was once again sort of being welcomed into the global village and everyone was going to be cool. But that, of course, is not how it played out. No, because he, as we said, became the chancellor of Germany two years later. And so by the end of 1933, German sports organizations had instituted a policy that only Aryans could participate in athletic clubs, And as a consequence of the anti-Semitism and racism that were in place in Germany, a lot of countries started a boycott movement against the 1936 games. This is another game that past hosts have talked about specifically on the show. Uh, And... Included in part of this movement to boycott were the United States, Great Britain, France, Sweden, the Netherlands, and Czechoslovakia. But eventually that boycott crumbled. Uh, it did not hold. And 49 nations did participate in the games. And Pierre de Coubertin had been invited, but he declined. He wanted nothing to do with it. And the games really turned into a big propaganda play for Hitler's Germany and later came to be known as the Nazi Games. Uh, this is, however, also the games where American Jesse Owens famously won four gold medals. So the Nazi games, but with a little nice stab from the U.S. <laughs> After the Olympics concluded in Berlin, Coubertin was described by his friends as being in this sort of state of melancholy. Uh, the troubles surrounding Germany as a host of the games were one cause, but he was also really de- dealing with serious financial issues. Yeah, Pierre was deeply troubled at the thought of all his life's work falling apart because of a lack of money. Like, he had really put a lot of his own money, in addition to his own time, in kind of getting all of this stuff off the ground. And uh, in August of 1937, he wrote in a letter to a close friend, quote, These adverse circumstances have created an agonizing situation. The loss of my personal fortune threatens my lifelong effort at enlightening pedagogical progress. Also in 1937, he was honored by the city of Lausanne, Switzerland. Is that how you say that? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Uh, As an honorary citizen. And this uh, is is in the... Suddenly my mind just went, well, you want me to read? Uh, And uh, this is... uh, Lausanne became home to the International Olympic Committee in 1915. So that's why they named him an honorary citizen. And while colleagues from the International Olympic Committee, as well as many of his friends, were trying to brainstorm ways that they might help Coubertin financially, that discussion quickly, unfortunately, became moot because not long after the Lausanne celebration on September 2nd of 1937, he had a heart attack while he was walking in a park in Geneva and he died. So his body was laid to rest there in Lausanne, but at the uh, Bois de Vos Cemetery, but his heart was interred adjacent to the ruins of ancient Olympia, Greece, with a commemoration of the revival of the Olympic Games. Uh, and that was done seven months after he died, and was done to honor and fulfill his wishes, which I feel like is important, because that would be a weird symbolism to do without someone's <laughs> prior consent. I don't know if anybody would have been down with somebody going, you know what we should do is put his heart in Olympia. He yeah. would have, his ghost was like, wee, wee. So... Except that didn't happen because no. he asked for that before. He was he died. like, please do this. With uh, my body. So that is Coubertin. And to end, we're going to talk about kind of a, a thing that inspired him t- to create, sort of the creed of the Olympic Games. And that's that during the 1908 London Games, uh, Pierre was inspired by the words of a, uh, the Bishop of Bethlehem, who is Ethelbert Talbot. And that bishop was addressing a group of athletes and officials, and he was conveying this really important message that winning was not to be gained at all costs. And the IOC president, Pierre de Coubertin, after that, crafted this sentiment into the following phrase, which has become the Olympic Creed. And that is, L'important dans la vie, ce n'est point le triomphe, mais le combat. L'essentiel, ce n'est pas d'avoir vaincu, mais de s'être bien battu. So the important thing in life is not the triumph. But the struggle. The essential thing is not to have won, but to have fought well. So that's the scoop on the Olympics and how they got started. Pierre de Couture. Yeah. One super quick addendum to the show. It came up during our Q&A that there is a medal for sportsmanship and Olympic spirit that's named for Pierre de Coubertin. That's only been awarded just a very few times in Olympic history. And coincidentally, the day after our show, it was awarded to uh, Nikki Hamblin of New Zealand and Abby D'Agostino of the United States, who are the runners who collided during their heat for the women's 5000 meter race uh, and then helped each other up and basically continued to help each other uh, as they crossed the finish line. So that happened. Uh, and it happened just after we had talked about him. One more time. Thank you, everyone who waited around an additional two hours <laughs> for our Holy show. Holy it was really incredible, and I I feel like we have to thank the DMA, like, to the high heavens. They were really incredible to work with. Jessie Frazier, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, was amazing. She was so spectacular and just rolled with all of this craziness. And then when our event was over, we had only a limited time until the museum went into lockdown for the night, and she ran us around and showed us all the best stuff. She was incredible. It was such a great evening, like I said, despite the franticness. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I don't have regular listener mail since we are running long on this one, but I did want to do a shout out related a little bit, uh, to <laughs> museums because we've gotten a number of postcards from our listeners who went to see the Vigier Lebrun exhibit that has been touring, uh, and I just wanted to say thank you to them. Uh, in particular, we got one from Mary Jane. And it is lovely. Uh, it's one of her self-portraits. And then we got another from a listener whose name is obscured on the postcard by postal markings, as all too often happens. Uh, so I can't thank her by name, but I will say it is the person... Who, uh, recently relocated to London. So if that is you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It is also another Vigée Lebrun self-portrait, but not the same one. So thank you guys. I get so excited knowing that, that you got excited and went and saw this exhibit. So thank you, thank you. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at com. You can find us pretty much anywhere on social media under the tag at Mist in History. That goes for Twitter. That goes for Facebook. That goes for Instagram, Tumblr basically anywhere uh, if you would like to uh, go to our website you can do that it is mistinhistory.com we have show notes from every episode Tracy and I have worked on together as well as an archive of every episode ever 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 uh, you can also visit our parent site HowStuffWorks type in the words Olympic or type in the word Olympics in the search bar and you're going to find all kinds of things about Olympic history uh, so we encourage you come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com